I want to tell you about Persistent Vision Records. They are a brand new label that has hit the ground running. They've just reissued two records from Screamo Legends Page 99, the singles collection, as well as Document Number 8, which is an all-time personal favorite of mine. But they're not just doing reissues. They've also just released a split between Habak and Lagrimas, who are two bands that I've absolutely got my eye on that are so good. You can order these great releases directly through PersistentVisionRecords.com or through DeathWishInc.com. Give them a follow on Instagram at Persistent Vision Records so you don't miss out on what's coming next. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 160, it's Dan Yemen of a million incredible bands. And we talk about just just about all of them, I think. Uh, this is a longer episode, as you're gonna, as you'll notice if you uh, scope to the runtime. We get into a lot of stuff. We actually recorded this over three different sessions to kind of get everything tied in. Um, I want to let you know though before I get any further, that Dan's got a lot of stuff on the horizon. He plays in a band called Open City, which is incredible. They got a record coming out October sixth on Get Better Records. It's called Hands in the Honey Jar. Then. Following that, we get a new Painted Black record. It's called Famine. It's out November 3rd on Revelation. They got a record release show November 5th in Philly at the church. So if you're lucky enough to be in Philly and uh, can't attend, I believe you can get tickets now for that. Um, he's also playing bass now in a band called Bitter Branches. They've been around for a little while. It features uh, members of Dead Guy. Very good, if you're, especially if you're a fan of Dead Guy. You got to check out Bitter Branches. Uh, but yeah, in this talk, we get into obviously Lifetime, Kid Dynamite, um, all sorts of stuff. We 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 go deep. And this was a lot of fun. Um, Dan is someone that I've really, really respected, looked up to. Um, I've enjoyed all of his musical output. So uh, this was a lot of fun for me. And I'm very honored to have him as a guest. I also want to let you know if you're new here that there's a bonus episode available right now where Dan answered questions that were submitted by subscribers you can access that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. And uh, you get access to that. You can submit questions, to upcoming guests, all sorts of fun stuff. I made an announcement on Monday, by the way, that I had to stop doing radio hours on the main feed here out of risk of the show getting shut down because I was, I was pushing my luck for a really long time playing uh, copyrighted material. But uh, I'm doing them still over on the Patreon. So if you enjoyed that and that's something you feel like you're going to miss, um, if you're willing to pay $3 a month, you can get access to all of the past radio hours, which I uh, unfortunately had to pull down, plus uh, all the ones I'll be doing going forward. 
Um, what else is up? Oh, if you enjoy this, please subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this. I always appreciate a positive rating and review. I think that's it for me, though. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the wise, the talented, the prolific. It's Dan Yemen. Hey, Dan, it's nice to see you. We were just reminiscing off of the uh, the mic here, and uh, we realized we haven't seen each other in 10 years, and I'm still absorbing that information yeah. <laughs> as we're about to start talking. It doesn't seem like a long time ago. I know, I know. Um, so, oh, man, so it's so fun to do research on people that, as you know, we've known each other now for, for quite a while um, and still discover new things in that process so this was a lot of fun for me prepping for this and also extensive (laughs) because uh yeah you've you've put out a lot of things i'm going to do my best not to just like punish you and go through one by one we'll just we'll we'll do it as it comes but um okay yeah this was a lot of fun um i'm glad are you just because sometimes wikipedia can be a bit of a liar when doing research um you're obviously from new jersey born and raised no, no, I was born in New York. See, there you go, right out the gate. Already yeah. already wrong. Already uh, already the lies and the misinformation. Um yeah, I moved to New Jersey when I was eight. Oh, okay. Where in New York were you? I was born in the city. Okay. And then we lived in we lived lived in the city for a little bit, which I don't remember. We lived upstate near Schenectady, which I do sort of remember. We lived in Yonkers for a bunch of years, which I definitely remember, and then New Jersey. Wow. Do you, so we're, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, do you, so you said, actually, you don't wait, have to... hold on. Hold on. Actually, my parents lived in Chicago for one year when I was one year old. Oh my God. What were yeah. they doing that was bouncing them around? Were they, were they just accepting early, different jobs? Early career stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, are, I know you work obviously in psychology. Were any of them interested in medicine or did they ever, did they do anything in medicine at all? My mom actually has a master's degree in child psychology. Wow. But she did not, she didn't stay in the field. She was, by the time I was a teenager, she was working uh, for an insurance company. Okay. When psychology was too much, psychology was too much gray area for her. Like Ah. the, the, uh. The absence of like definitive answers for things uh, isn't a good fit for her sort of way of being in the world. Interesting. And is that a thing that you are intrigued by? Like, is that like where the yeah. things go different ways? I mean, to me, to me, it's all ambiguity and all, all like social and linguistic meaning is at least to some extent dependent on context. Hmm. And that's what I find interesting about the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so when you were growing up, uh, were you interested in music right away or was that something that, um, took a little time with you? Like, do you, do you remember being like a young person and being interested? Like early elementary school. Um, and I remember being captivated because in my, in my, my house, it was only classical music. It's all my parents listened to. And then when I finally like peeped like radio in somebody's car, I was like, oh, songs. Like, you know, and I was just sort of like trying to figure out what was what and 
wait for the DJ to come on. And, and this is just like top 40 radio in the, in the seventies. But yeah, um, I remember, and it's so weird. I, um, because it was just a world I didn't have access to in the four walls of my house. So like I was like, oh. and my parents didn't listen to FM radio. They only listened to the classical music station in like the New York WQXR out of New York city. So it would be in other people's cars, you know, when you start being more social and you're driving, you know, other people's cars and uh, maybe your friend's parents are driving you somewhere. And I remember in the paper, um, they would publish like the, the top 10 every week, like the top 10 songs. And I would make these lists of bands in the top 10. And then I remember at one point, I must've been like nine years old or something. I asked my babysitter, do you think I got all the bands? Like meaning like in the world. <laughs> and I remember just her, la her laughing at me. Like, what uh, are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And, and she was like, well, first of all, I remember she said, well, first of all, keep in mind this is the 70s. She goes, first of all, Aerosmith is not on your list. <laughs> um, it's fun. So were you, I'm assuming you weren't interested in classical music, but I'm curious because there's a lot of things that when you're young, your parents are playing in the house that like you maybe have no interest in, but as you get older, you have, uh, you know, like, you find a respect for it or maybe things do click when you're older and it brings you back to that sort of nostalgia feeling. Um, were there things that you've come around to in classical music now that you're older or are you just disinterested still? No, mostly because uh, my, one of my kids is a very serious uh, cello student. Oh, cool. And so it's all classical, the stuff that, um, the stuff that she's working on. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then, you know, so of course you take an interest in whatever your kid's doing. And I, I've also come as like a, a, as someone who thinks a lot about dynamics in songwriting, I'm, I get, now I can appreciate the bombast in classical music, like sure. crescendos with like timpani and like dozens of strings and brass and just like it's bombastic and like it goes from quiet to loud in these like sudden but precise and evocative kind of ways and now i've come to appreciate the dynamics of it even though it's not like stuff i listen to uh usually right i'm not usually seeking it out but when it comes on i really tune into like how they how they how they just like how they craft emotional impact with like dynamics yeah, no, I feel that. Yeah, that like especially if things are like kind of discordant and maybe ugly sounding for the, you know, like as a way yeah. to be um you know, I feel like that's like the early sign of musical counterculture, the people who were like making things that were really uncomfortable sounding. And then Yeah. Yeah, wow. and then especially especially if there's things that are, you know, if you're a movie fan, like there's things that all of a sudden click is like very cinematic too. So there's a lot of aspects that you can grapple yeah. with. Uh when you find the appreciation for it um so like the first question i usually ask guests is like the when was the first time you felt uh were sorry uh the first time you connected with music that felt like it was yours so it sounds like music in general was like things that you were discovering on your own um do you yeah. remember the first album that you bought with your own money yes i do what was it the first the first kiss lp 
the self-titled nice. Kiss MC. Yeah. Were your parents um, like freaked out by it or anything like that? No, I think, you know, I think they don't, they didn't understand it, but I think they have a, they had a, a they were not um, like restrictive or judgmental people. They kind of were just like, oh, they didn't expect to understand everything that we got into. They were just like, ah, I guess that's like youth, that's some youth stuff. That's great to hear because I know there was such like a panic amongst parents around that time about Kiss specifically because of obviously the name, yeah. the way they look, like all that sort of stuff. But it's cool that your parents were just like, eh, it's for kids. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get to see them? No, I never got to see them. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. And by the time I could, it, I, it just seemed more like a circus to me. Like I wouldn't. <laughs> Like, you know, when I was 10, I would have loved to see, like, hydraulic drum riser lifts and, like, explosions on stage. But, you know, like, I like chaos on stage, but not, like, not not scripted. Right. Chaos. Like, like it's not chaos if it's planned by, like, production managers and stuff. Like, it's just... Right. Yeah. Um, like, certain kinds of spectacle I can get behind and other stuff just feels like all right i got i i've been to the circus like i don't need to yeah 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 um, yeah and you know i don't i you know in retrospect like i don't think kiss wrote a lot of great songs <laughs> yeah there i it's funny when you get when when you know you meet the friends that are huge kiss fans and mm -hmm there's definitely songs that like as i've gotten older i used to just write it off and be like how could mm -hmm. a band that look that sick sound so soft um yeah. but then you know all of a sudden you hear the right you hear the right chorus and you're like okay i can't i but, can't deny that song goes but speaking of like thick and soft like the stuff that i the songs of theirs that i like the most are their like 70s like like the more like power poppy stuff like oh sure. stuff on like on like rock and roll over and destroyer there's like some pop rock gems, like with great choruses, you know, and then there's a few of the older heavy ones, like God of Thunder is a sick song, obviously, but like, I don't come back to Kiss a lot. I was about um, to ask, when was the last time you threw Kiss on? Uh, it's probably been a minute. Couldn't even tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's been a minute. Probably since I've seen, not since I've seen you. Yeah. Um, so that's what, 30, 30 years? 30 years, something uh, like that, yeah. But yeah, I think um, what one of the things that captivated me about Kiss, which is a recurring motif for me in terms of one of the things I find engaging is there's like some sense of like under, there's like an undercurrent of, there's a narrative. Like, you know, you, there's like each each character had their own personality and backstory and it's just hinted at, so you kind of want to know you want to know what's up like what is so what's up it's a gene the bass player's a demon like is he like the, like i want i just want to know more look and um and the fact that their identities were concealed back then was also like fascinating to me so yeah it's the same and it's exactly the same feeling that that i got when i first got into wu-tang clan there's like nine MCs. Each one of them has three different names and like different styles. And like, I just wanted to know more. Yeah. And, and you know, pre-internet, you're just like any magazine you see on any record store or bookstore shelf, you're just like, grab it. 
read everything, like study the pictures. And, and that was the same in 1994, 1995 with Wu-Tang as it was with Kiss in 1977, you know, like the same feeling for me. Like I wanted to know everything. No, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Anytime there's like more than just pulled me in. Totally. Anytime there's just more than the music, when there's something to grab onto, uh, to, to grab onto that there's like a mystique to it or something's mysterious or, yeah, any of the any of those things that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I feel like that transcends, you know, going further and further. Like, you know, yeah. even to these days, when you uh, some band shows up on a on a Bandcamp page or something like that, and there's yeah. no information about them, but no it's information really good. on like what's this, what is yeah. this? Totally, totally. And how is this? How is something? There's something this sick that I've never heard of before. Yeah, yeah, it's almost insulting. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how dare you fly under my radar like that? But it's also fa- like really enthralling too i'm like oh, tell me everything oh there's no information online no way like yeah 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 uh, uh yeah what was what was the first concert you went to blue oyster cult dude amazing <laughs> don't fear, don't fear the reaper baby it's a banger it's yeah, a banger it is uh um, where was that show at madison tour garden amazing do you remember yeah. who opened Yes, Foghat. Dude, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Did you go to that show with friends? Did your parents take you or what? A, f- a friend's dad took a bunch of us. And what do you remember Ran- from it? I just remember, I remember the singer of Blue Oyster wrote his Harley on stage <laughs> right, right as an intro to when they played Born to Be. They covered Born to Be Wild. Uh-huh. From that Steppenwolf song, and totally. he rode his fucking Harley on stage. You know, just concerts aren't the same. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We used we used to be a real country. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's sad. <laughs> Man, that's the amazing. Mag- the magic is gone. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't like I, none of us kids were like fans of the band. It was just like there's this concert, and and uh, and Howard Cohen, our neighbor's uh, dad was like, hey, I'm just going to take a bunch of kids to this concert. Like, and of course, you know, I, I was at that point, like, yes, please. Yeah. How old are you at this point? I was 12. 12. That's a awesome age to get to yeah. experience something like that. Were you, yeah. did you find yourself like wanting more, you know, like, did you, did you start trying to seek out going to concerts or did that take a little while? Um, until you started, no, we started, like, started seeking, started seeking stuff out and, you know, all over the map. I saw Rush. I saw Yes. Amazing. Um, I saw Duran Duran. These are all at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And I remember vividly when I decided I was never, I was not going to see an arena show ever again. I had, I had started getting into punk and, uh, I was also really into the first couple of U2 records and, they came out with uh, the Unforgettable Fire, and played at the and Brian Eno produced that record. There's a lot of really cool sounds on that record, and they're heading in a radio direction, but not fully there yet. And they played at the Meadowlands in Jersey, and I'd seen a few punk shows at that point, and I remember thinking like, it's so far away, I don't feel anything. Mm. Yeah, 
And I was like, I think I'm done with this, like with stadiums and, and arenas. Like, I think I'm done. It is interesting how once you experience the, you know, the intimacy of a of a punk show, how quickly your brain just absorbs information differently about yeah. experiences where you're just like, okay, yeah. well, this isn't the same. I'm not getting the same feeling, you know, all of all of that. That's that's super interesting. But at the same time, I'm sure that you two show is pretty, pretty cool in certain aspects. You mean they played a lot of songs that I love? I still love. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. um, you know, like they they're pretty. They were a pretty cool post punk band for a minute for for like three records. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's, I, I mean, I feel like you can't really go wrong with at least up until Joshua Tree, and then you sort of get diminishing returns after that. But yeah. when you get the good ones, they they can still write a song yeah. every now and again. The only thing I really cared about after Unforgettable Fire was um, that record where they really dug into their Motown um, influence. Like, what is it? Rattle and Hum? Angel of Harlem? That, that could record? be. I think so. That, I thought that, because I'm really into Motown, and so that, I like the vibe they were going with there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, I mean, generic question, but like, what was your gateway then to finding more aggressive music? Like, was it a, did you have like a, a friend that was into it? What was your, uh, what was your, your starting path? Okay. It kind of emerges from the question about the first time you played in front of people. Yeah. So I was in a, a band in middle school that played covers and we played at uh, the band was called Double Exposure. Nice, by the way. We played covers of a weird variety, like played like the Cars and the Rolling Stones and the Who, and even um, <laughs> played the English Beats version of Tears of a Clown. Like it's weird combination of music, but you know, you're you're like fourteen. But um, so we played at this battle of bands in our middle school gymnasium. Uh, and the other band that was good, who were on the other side of the gym, they were all kids with cool older brothers. Mm. And they were playing the, like the jam and the clash. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, and so I really started paying attention to those kids and listening to like what they were talking about. And so that's how I first found the jam and the clash. Then it was, you know, a short trip to the record store. We had a record store in our town, like a mom and pop. So like I bought uh, Nevermind the Bollocks and I bought the American version of the first Clash LP. And then I they had this little phase where I bought things just because they looked sick. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Walk Among Us, I boxed it looked sick, uh, and um, but the first Squirrel Bait EP I bought because the kid has a Walkman stuffed into his mouth, like it's a sandwich, and how's I not going to buy that? <laughs> uh, that's and it turned I, out to be one of my favorite records, you know. Like that's amazing. It's funny how I th- I feel like a lot of us did that, but then there was always a circumstance where you bought something that was a dud where you're like, oh man, <laughs> like I thought yeah. this, this cover deceived me. Yeah. But I don't, I don't have a, it's probably happened, but I don't, Oh yeah. You know, once I was like really into hardcore, I bought stuff that looked hardcore yeah. and it was dumb and it was dumb. Like, 
even like early on i had an allergy to like thug shit yeah probably because i'm like at the at the end of the day like i mean i've been living in philadelphia for 32 years but like at the end of the day my origins are like i'm a soft kid from the suburbs yeah you know and i can say i'm from new york it's where i'm born and my parents both grew up in the bronx but i'm a soft suburban kid and like thug shit makes me nervous um, and I remember I bought some stuff that just looked, it had the right font, it had the right kind of cover image. And I was like, oh, this is just like guys threatening to beat up other guys. That's right. just not it. It's not even then, even at like 21, that wasn't compelling to me. I was like, totally. You can yeah. do be- with this With this vehicle, you can do better than this. But, you know. I, I, you and no, I are on this yeah, same page there. Yeah, definitely. But none of my early forays in, at the music staff in Westfield, New Jersey, none of those were duds. Like anything I bought because it looked cool was cool. That's awesome. Um, and then, and then, right, all of this happens around the same time. It's like I see this other band in the middle school gym. I'm like mesmerized by the music they're playing. You know, like I think the first thing that grabbed me is how the bass lines were really carrying the melody like like you know like london calling and in the city and uh you know stuff like that and 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 how the guitar is just kind of like jagged and more minimal and then and then you know got a few records then discovered college radio ah uh, and that uh, yeah. that was this is so for pre-internet kids that was everything you know totally so totally. i'm like dead where we lived was dead in the footprint of uh, WRSU, which is the Rutgers University station out of New Brunswick. And then a, a college that I think doesn't exist anymore, Staten Island College had a radio station called WSIA. And we were like, you could throw a rock at Staten Island from where I grew up. So like that came in most of the time. And I would yeah. come home and like I would put a tape, like my dad had this auto reverse tape deck and I'll put a 120 minute tape in and push record and then go out and play with my friends. And then I would come back and just like, I'd have a pad of paper and I'd listen, I'd like mark like which songs were like, oh, wow, oh, damn. And then wait for the DJ to come on and list what he just played. And then based on that, I would go order records at the record yeah. store. So minor threat, suicidal tendency, but you know, it was free form. So at the time, you know, there was like, what, what gets called alternative now, I think they call college rock or under, you know, I don't know, but like, so like the same DJ would be playing like early psychedelic furs and cure and Elvis Costello and the attractions and minor threat, suicidal tendencies, Husker Du, Generation X, all in the same show. Damn. I was just fucking mesmerized. Yeah. Damn. That's awesome. I also like that. It's, it's, it's like audio hunting. You know, it's like you yeah, set up your trap, totally. you you put the cassette in, and then you go out and you play and you come back and see what you found. Like see what, oh, well see what said. came in. I didn't yeah. I didn't think about it in those terms, but that's perfect. Yeah. Like I just set the set the trap and then came back later. Yeah. Caught. Now, you always caught something because like it was just not it was just great. You know, they hadn't like rave music hadn't been invented yet. So it was literally all like punk and like other underground rock and maybe you know new wave post-punk like that's so cool that's all the styles were stuff i was interested in and so that's how i ended up with the first generation xlp that's how i ended up with 
minor threat out of step. That's how I ended up with Husker Du Metal Circus. What was the first punk concert that you like, punk show that you like sought out and went to? Uh, it was actually a Rock Against Racism benefit in Central Park that a friend brought me to. And it was, I'll never forget this. It was uh, Cause for Alarm, Reagan Youth, and Roxanne Chante. Yeah, was that show, was it like super, was there like a ton of people there? Because it sounds like it was like a big rally. Was it like super yeah. crowded? Were you, ner- did you find yourself being nervous? Yeah, I mean, no, because I stayed, I stayed in back. Yeah. You know, like, um, it wasn't, it was a big crowd, but it wasn't like, you know, if, if, um, like, it wasn't like if The Cure played a free show in Central Park, it wasn't that. Totally. But it was like hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it's cool that it was like a hardcore and hip hop crossover show, which like back then, hip hop and hardcore were both these street art forms that you would never, ever think you would ever, ever in a million years hear on the radio. And so like anybody that I knew that listened to hardcore also listened to hip hop. Which explains like the early Beastie Boys sort of mentality. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or like the cover of the side by side seven inches, like modeled off of like a, a LL Cool J record. Yeah. And like, you know, all the, all the lingo that you hear, like war, the Warzone dudes using on their records, like it's all hip hop stuff, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, we could backtrack a little bit cause we, you know, we, we did jump ahead just a little bit. So you mentioned you were, you played in this, uh, in the school gymnasium. So you already had a band at that point. Is guitar your first instrument? No, piano and then trumpet. Oh, okay. How old were you when you started playing? I couldn't be bothered to practice any of those. Like I learned, I learned some theory, and that's been really helpful. But okay, I I learned to read music and then forgot how to read music pretty Mm. quickly. Yeah. Um, Did you? It sounds like you have siblings. Is it? Is that right? Yeah, I have a I have a younger brother. Okay. Were they also interested? Were they also uh, playing music at that time? Like, was this something your parents were trying to, like, put on you for, like, an extracurricular sort of a thing with trumpet and piano? I think um, they, started me on pia- they started me on piano lessons when I was pretty young. They just thought, you know, they believed in music education. Um, so I think I started piano lessons when I was, like, seven or something like that. Took them for a few years. and I never practiced anything until I found, I found my mom's old guitar in a closet and was like, whoa. Oh, so that was that was the entry point. Did she still yeah. play? Like, could she still play? Now or back then? Back then. I mean, yeah. If you're saying like the guitar was in the closet, was it something that like she I think was she'd invested kinda, in? She'd kind of stopped. She'd played for a while and took lessons for a while, and she'd bring it on camping trips and like play around the campfire kind of stuff. Right. Um, and I think by then, I was you know already like in junior high, and she was I think kind of done with it. Like. It, I remember finding it in the closet and being like, oh, we have this. Right. Like I'd for, kind of forgotten that it was in the house. Yeah. So I think she was kind of done with it by then. So did you take lessons or were you just fiddling around with it, kind of figuring it out on your own? Uh, first fiddling around. And then when they saw, as soon as they saw how into it I was, they were like, do you want lessons? And I was like, yes, please. How long did that last? Were you uh, were you like a good student in that regard? You, I talked to a lot of people who do like the one or two lessons and then 
Oh, I, kinda... I studied with a classical guitarist for like three years. Oh, wow. I wouldn't say I was a good student, but I was, um, I played guitar a lot. Yeah. I didn't play the things she asked me to practice very much, but I learned a lot from her. Did you have the sort of thing where you would ask like, Hey, can you teach me how to play this kiss song? Yeah. I guess she would combine like stuff that she was assigning me and stuff that I asked to learn. Okay. That's so. helpful. Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example. And it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, workcoffeebar.com. So then you mentioned your first band. You said it was Double Exposure. That was what That's it's called. That's what it is, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so how did that band form? Were they like friends from the neighborhood, people you went to school with? Like how, did you, from, how did you all find from, each other? Friends from school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so you mentioned you were doing covers. Did you write any originals in that band? No. No? And then the first show was this show in this uh, gymnasium? And battle of the bands in the battle. Thomas Thomas Edison Junior High School gymnasium. Did you win? I'm sure we did not win. <laughs> did the punk band win? I think they probably did. They should have. If they they should have. They won the day. They were great. Yeah. What yeah. were they called? Do you remember? Don't remember. Oh, that's too bad. Did you I ever... remember who was I remember who was in the band? I was about to say, like, did they go on to play in any other bands? Uh, not like bands. Yeah, but like, I think they, you know, like, got more into like hippie and, and free jazz kind of stuff. Like, Interesting. More like real player kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Whereas like, I kind of had developmental arrest at punk. As we all do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... And then did you start a punk band sometime shortly after that? And then what was, what was like the first, like, We you know... started a band in high school that did covers and originals, but I wouldn't say it was a punk band. I mean, like the, the stuff that we wrote was probably like, I would say heavily influenced by the jam. Okay. Mo most blatantly. And like the, the more like punchy, early Elvis Costello and the Attraction song. It's like, are you a fan at all of El Elvis's early? Yeah, so yeah. So like, yeah. I, I would say we were influenced by stuff like Welcome to the Working Week and Pump It Up and stuff like those kind of songs. Sure. So our songs sounded like high school kids trying to write those songs. Okay. Like, yeah, like the very like power poppy sort of stuff. Yeah. And then, and you know, those songs and like, you know, In the City and, you know, Billy Hunt from, you know, jam song, like our favorite jam songs. Yeah. Um, 
And then the covers were sort of along the same lines, although we did play a bunch of early REM songs as well. I was like really Murmur into or something? Yeah, I was really into REM, Chronic Town and Murmur especially. I mean, you can't get much more perfect specifically than that first REM record. Yeah. Did you ever get to see them? Yeah, a bunch of times. Oh man, I'm jealous. I know I still I never saw, saw them. I saw them at Rutgers in like a hall, like a Rutgers like gymnasium. And then I saw them at the Beacon Theater in New York. And then I saw them at Radio City Music Hall. Damn. Yeah. That's amazing. I used to have this live tape of them from the Reckoning tour. And um and on it they were I guess Hyena, the song that was on Life's Rich Pageant. Hyena had been a song for a while and they were playing it live uh, on tour for a good chunk of time before the album that it was on came out. And I had this live version of Hyena on a live tape and you can hear it in the, uh, the version that makes it onto the album, but um, I like the way Mike Mills backups always just sound like another, vo another lead vocalist mix yeah. a little lower like just like he had another kind of counterpoint melody line going on yeah and in this live version of hyena i was obsessed with i like listened to it over and over until the tape broke the the way the backups are mixed they're just as loud as michael stipe's vocals so it just sounds like two lead vocal lines running through the whole song oh, and wow. it just sounded so mysterious and cool that i was just you know yeah something that's Fun. Uh, so this guy, Brad Wood, that produced um, our third and fourth record. Um, he's from Man Chicago. No, different. Not, no, the, no. not Men is the Bastard. Okay. No, 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 no. Um, different. Guy. Okay. So he was a big REM guy, still is to this day. And as a college kid, he went and saw them. And I think mm -hmm. the story goes that he was friends with the sound engineer at the venue. And before they started playing, he put in a cassette into like whatever machine they had and he recorded their set. And right. that night they had played whatever their upcoming record was or something like that. Oh, wow. So he was like, oh, I got this cassette or whatever. Right. So then years, you know, probably 20 years goes by. He becomes, you know, a notable producer. Like he did records with like Smashing Pumpkins and like all this sort of stuff and ends up in the room. With, I think it might have been with Mike Mills or something like that. And he tells him the story. He's like, yeah, when I was a kid, I recorded the set or whatever. And apparently he was pissed at him. Like, even though it was so far away, he was he was just like, that's a pretty dick move, man. And Brad was like, whoa, <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. Like, oh. he was like, take it. He, he was like, I thought it would, he'd be he'd think the story was cool, but he was yeah. kind of mad at me. <laughs> that's disappointing. Yeah, I was. I was. He, he was like, I didn't. He's like, I felt really awkward. I had to like kind of leave the conversation because I was like, I felt like he was actually really mad at me. Um. So then, uh, what was the first band that you recorded with? I think my band in high school, which was called The Job, by the way. How mm -hmm. obvious is the influence? Um, <laughs> uh, I think we recorded one song, one original on a four track. Like I got a friend's older brother was like recording bands on. Okay. Um, the first time I was in a studio was I joined a band in college called Cancer. They had they had been a band. They were a group of kids that all went to school together in high school in a suburb of Detroit, and they had already played a bunch of sh like real punk shows at like 
real venues, you know, and then they went to college. The two of them went to college together, but their rhythm section, they lost their rhythm section. Um, and, and I joined on bass and that was an interesting setup because like I was moving from more melodic stuff into, I just wanted to play like aggressive, like really aggressive punk. And they were moving from playing really aggressive punk into more, into like more melodic and, and, uh, territory. And so we kind of met, like we crossed at the crossroads there. Yeah. Yeah. And like kind of when our styles were overlapping, but diverging and we, we wrote like a bunch of original, we just played originals and I think we recorded at a recording studio that was in one of the dorms um, at, at University of Michigan. There's uh, East Quad, which also had a venue in it where I saw some crazy shows. Um, it was like the more like, it's this big state school, but they had this one little, one dorm that was more like set up to have the vibe of like a small, uh, small liberal arts college. So it was all the like freaks lived in that dorm. And they had a venue, like a coffee house venue in the basement and a recording studio. Uh, and this is for anyone who knows the area, it's East Quad uh, at University of Michigan in, Ar- in Ann Arbor. We recorded there. I wish I don't have the tape anymore. I wish I did. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I was playing bass in that band and like writing songs on bass, which was cool. Um, but you know, right down the hall from uh, from that studio was the the halfway in, which I think people affectionately called like the half ass. Uh huh. And I saw I saw Big Black there. I saw Laughing Hyenas there. Saw a lot of cool shows there. Wow. And you're saying that was like in, a little yeah. And so that was you. That was in Michigan. You're saying. Yeah. Okay. Um. So what was the first band that you toured with? Lifetime. Oh, okay. Yeah. So when looking at, you know, so when doing research and stuff, in 1991 is the first Lifetime 7-ish, but also you played in Resurrection, and that also came out the same year. Yeah. Had you, yeah. Had you put anything out on vinyl or, or anything like that before that that's maybe not, you know, as easy to find? Or are those your no. first bands that were ever on vinyl? Those are my first bands on vinyl. Which of those were you playing in first? And like, Lifetime. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. So, what was the resurrection story? Because I saw that Ari played drums in Resurrection yeah. at that time. Yeah, and I played bass. So, what? what yeah. How did? Uh, how did both of those exist at the same time? Like, and how did you know? Like, which came? As you said, Lifetime came first. But so, how did Resurrection come to well, be at that time? Ari, Ari, and Rob were best friends from high school. Hmm. And I met when I met them, I was just out of college and they were 19. And so they both went to Edison High School and Lifetime was practicing in Rob's dad's garage. Uh, and then Rob decided he wanted to do another another band. Release had broken up. And he wanted to do a band that was like more straight edge than release, like <laughs> more like darkly straight edge. Uh-huh. And and he was like but Yeeman can be in the band because he's more posy. 
even though he's not straight edge, he's more posy than any of us. So he can be in the band. That was, that was Rob's take on it. <laughs> well, that's why I was in Resurrection. Got it. Got it. Were you, how long were you in that band? Cause it, it's, it, I saw they went through a bunch of different members and things like that. Like, were you in it for it's a couple of those seven inches? The first comp track, the, a compilation track that Lifetime's also on, a seven inch uh, comp- Jersey, New Jersey compilation by Horizon Records. Okay. Which I think that might've been their only release, but um, there's a song from the Lifetime demo on it. And then a reser- the first version of Melting Away, which, so it was Rob's thing. And then he asked me and Ari, we're like, yeah, sure, we're down. And then Chris Duzai from, uh, from uh, release was at the first practices and we wrote Melting Away. Then we recorded it. I played bass and guitar. And Chris, I believe, also played guitar. Okay. Um, and then I don't know why he wasn't in the next, like the early live iteration of the band. Maybe he just wasn't around or he went to college for a while. I'm not sure. But then it was, so it was me, Ari, Rob, Crispy, who had been the first bass player in Lifetime, Chris Corvino, who went on to be a dead guy. Yeah. And then Dan Hornacker wrote the songs on that first seven inch. He was like this younger kid and he was a genius. I thought like, he just like wrote all these weird dissonant, like my war meets blast kind of songs really like blew my mind because I had like, you know, studied theory and I was like, these songs aren't in any key. Uh-huh. So it just blew my mind Yeah. Uh, at the time. And I was like, cool. And then, uh, between the two bands, me and Ari were at Rob's garage like four nights a week, and it got to be too much. And uh, one of the most exciting things at that point for me was that we uh, we got to open for Gorilla Biscuits at the Unisound in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I was like, what? Yeah, right. They're going to be on the same. To me, that was like. Madison Square Garden. Totally. Like, we're going to be on the same stage as Gorilla Biscuit. It's incredible. Uh, so did you and Ari leave that band at the same time just to like focus more yeah. your attention on Lifetime? Okay. Yeah. No no drama. Just like, just like hey, couldn't... we're going to yeah. do this thing. And I'm sure everybody would, you know, I'm sure it wasn't hard for him to find people to play in yeah. Resurrection. It took about 30 seconds. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, way sort of off subject, but you mentioned Dead Guy. So are I think I saw. Are you playing in Bitter Branches now? I am. Yeah, that's awesome. And you're playing We're bass. Reco- I'm playing bass. We're recording a, uh, the second LP in like three weeks. Oh wow, that's exciting, man! You're yeah, with, you're always with, you're being prolific with guy right now. Yeah, yeah. It's a long dry spell, and exciting too because we're recording in Baltimore with Jay Robbins, who. If you did your research, we did two painted black records with him. Yeah. And he, he through that process has become a, a dear friend. So it's funny. I realized, you know, when again doing research and stuff, I, I appreciate how much you're sort of a creature of habit where you just kind of stuck to the same studios for the most part or stuck to the same producers. It's like you find what you like and then you sort of, you know, you did so much work with Steve Evitz um, mm-hmm. and now with Jay Robbins. Um, and then track cease just sort of in general sort of seemed like the 
the beacon of of recording yeah um it's the best that, studio in new jersey and do you and... feel like that's out of just proximity or do you feel like no matter what you would have continued to go to those places well also steve evitz moved to california and then like he's a good friend but by then he had an agent too and like i i can't do the thing where i like call a friend's agent to see if i can work with them like i just no it's disrespect funny. you gotta if, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. if you're recording full-time you need to have somebody else manage getting you gigs but i just can't i can't do i can't go through that whole thing that's where yeah. that's where my like uh that's where i kind of top out at, like being able to deal with industry stuff like i just something about mm -hmm. it feels like like if a friend called me about a show and i sent them to my booking agent i would feel like it's funny oh, right I can't do that. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's similar, but not 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 the same, but still similar. Is even with me doing this podcast, where uh, even though I'm friends with somebody, to go through their publicist is also very funny sometimes. Where yeah, I'm like, I get it, I get it. It's like I understand you want to be respectful. I want to be respectful to the people who are paid to do this, but at the same time, it's like I know I can just text this person and well, just say, "Hey, I are you free?" <laughs> And that's what like uh, like the people doing PR for these records that are dropping this fall. Like, I was like, you're you know you you are the expert, but I would appreciate it if for people that I'm friends with, I could deal with them directly and scheduling things, and I'll just like loop you in. Totally. And she was. They were like, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Right. Um, to jump back to Lifetime, so I was curious because um, I know both the Resurrection and um lifetime seven it just came out on new age which were which is a california label how did that enter your life was it through resurrection or how did that come to be no lifetime was first oh interesting yeah 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 lifetime we started we started playing in like the fall of 90 um and when we recorded the demo new age had just put out the turning point lp which to us was like the greatest thing that had come out of of New Jersey, like from our world, and we were like, I think Mike might have been the only person we sent it to. Hmm. Did you know him at all, or was it just like a cold call sort of situation? Just cold call. So, um, what was you mentioned? Lifetime was the first band that you toured with. So, when was that? Was it around the time of that seven inch, or did you not tour until Background came out? We actually did a thing. Um, we flew out to California for the seven inch record release and played like four shows in Southern California. And all the shows that were, that were with Outspoken, who had just, you know, their seven inch had been out for like six months and they were like the darlings of Southern California, like straight yeah. edge at that point. Yeah. So oh, the shows awesome. were pretty thick. Was that your first time on the West Coast? Yes. I mean, for music, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you had been out here for like vacation or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that was the first like quote-unquote tour, I guess, four days. We also it... played with Baby, Baby Strife on that run too. Oh, is that right? Yeah, they just had a seven-inch about to drop on New Age. They're like crucial youth or something. Like, you know, like thought. So it was cool because they were like young. Um, yeah. And I also remember like just like production stuff, you know, you had 
no control over when the printing and pressing plants were going to deliver anything. So we had. Sounds familiar. I, I remember the we had to make paper seven inch covers like at Kinko's the night before the shows because the covers weren't printed yet. Right. I love how it's like the record release show, but then the night before yeah. you're like, oh my God, we still got to make these things. Yeah. So there's like this limited press of like. The handmade so like, cover. Like handmade, like Kinko's copied full hand folded covers. Right. Oh, that's awesome. I don't know if yeah. I've noticed that. I, I know I have that seven inch, but it, definitely just the standard version of it. Um, so actually just for my own interest, because you were, you know, obviously going to shows or way earlier than this and everything like that. But like, what was your thoughts on when grunge became a big thing was that something you were interested in at all like did you like nirvana did you get to see any of those bands or anything like that or was that something you were already into punk and hardcore disinterested I saw them all before they blew up because ann arbor was one of these towns where like hardcore was done like no like i wanted to, i was like wondering why gorilla biscuits and yot weren't coming through you know, um, and what every punk kid in Ann Arbor wanted to see was like these new bands on this new label sub pop. So the thing, like, I remember that the early in my time there, well, my first weekend in Ann Arbor, September, 1986, the circle jerks played. And of course I went to that show. I yeah. love the circle jerks. But then after that, like the, the, first thing that all the weirdos in town were excited about was um when green river came to play oh right yeah the early pearl jam band right? yeah no no early is it oh it's the, it's, sing, early... it's the original singer of pearl jam or not pearl uh the uh what is it uh... I, I have to be honest i don't remember because i don't like that i didn't think they're sure, good sure. but yeah. but i did see but those were the underground bands that were coming to ann arbor for the most part um so I saw them by default because I was, I wanted to go to, so the stuff that I was like dead center excited about when I was there, you know, I saw the circle jerks. I saw poison idea. I saw Sonic youth when they were playing to like a hundred people and 200 people. And they were probably like the band I was most excited about outside of hardcore. So this is like when, I don't know if you're a Sonic youth fan, but like I am, yeah. when like, when like evil and sister came out, that's when mm -hmm. they were playing in this little venue in Ann Arbor that was like crazy. So I was very excited about that. And then I went to all the sub pop shows because that was the loud, aggressive music that was coming to town. So the Blind Pig is a club that, I don't know, maybe holds 300 people. So I saw Nirvana there, I saw Soundgarden there, I saw Tad there. What was your, I mean, you mentioned you weren't very into some of the stuff, but like, was Nirvana something that you were interested in at all or no? Yeah, I mean, I came to like it. They were so, those bands were so good live. I mean, like, yeah. you couldn't watch Nirvana and Soundgarden and not be compelled. Like, they're heavy and chaotic and aggressive and like, it was definitely very punk. Just like, yeah, not what I was precisely looking for, but I'm glad like, to see all those bands that became arena bands, like in this tiny little room with the stage, it's literally like you played the church, right? In yeah. Philly. Yeah. It's like that, that was the stage was that high. 
sneak but the room was but the room was much smaller yeah damn uh i kind of couldn't i was kind of like mystified like when nirvana blew up like i had the first album i had bleach and i listened to it a lot but when their next record came out it was like on the radio i was just like i was kind of i was in disbelief sure yeah they changed music you know like that was probably you're like the band that i saw in this tiny room was now yeah created an entire wave and killed hair metal and all of that stuff yeah it was but it was more perplexing to me and by that time like we were working on lifetime and it's like something that was happening in another in another dimension somewhere totally yeah i was just so curious just because yeah you were definitely oh. someone who could have seen that in the right time you know who else i got to see a bunch of times when they were that i loved when they were small was uh dinosaur jr oh nice they came to ann arbor a lot how long were you in ann arbor just four years just okay I graduated on time. I probably would have stayed except I wanted to get back to the East Coast and start a hardcore band. Got it. To jump ahead a little bit with uh, with Hello Bastards. So was that your first time working with Steve Evitz? No, Steve recorded the first seven inch. Oh, I don't know if I realized that. Yeah. Interesting. And then for some reason, we did background at this little studio in New Jersey called SRA. And I don't know how we ended up recording there or why. I know the the band had gone through some lineup changes. I think they it started around the Tinnitus 7-inch or something like that, maybe with the newer members playing in the band. Is that correct-ish? We had like a number of lineup changes that went in waves. It wasn't all at once. But Tinnitus was kind of when we were, that was like, our, that became our our working lineup. Do you feel like, the newer members influenced the the evolution of the band between background and hello bastards or do you think it was just you all playing together for more time and just you know developing no, it was, it was yeah. two things it was the newer members and then the second thing was learning to write like instead of i finally got it through my thick head my thick skull that instead of writing like cool parts that like sounded like turning point or sounded like burn or whatever I was shooting for and then stapling them together with not much eye to songcraft. Uh, I learned, I was writing for what Ari's voice was becoming able to do. Oh, interesting. We started writing towards each other instead of like in parallel. Mm. That's if that makes any sense. No, it totally does. It totally does. Um, Yeah. I was also curious uh, with the album cover being like a House Martins rip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that what what was that decision? Was that was the House Martins a band that you all were fans of? Was that just a cover you thought was cool? And was that kind of influenced by how like the Clash ripped off the the Elvis cover was that sort of like the motivation what do you remember from from uh deciding on that artwork that was Ari's idea Ari I think we really drove the design decisions for the band and uh, you know I just thought it looked cool I, I think so it was definitely like a direct nod to the house Martins I don't know if Ari was really into them I, I wasn't um, <laughs> sure I mean I wasn't I hadn't really listened I wasn't like I didn't like them I just yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you liked Elvis Costello. It's like not yeah. the most far off yeah, thing. Yeah, and, and I and I love the Smiths. You know, yeah. it's Cardigan, Cardigan Rock. So, 
Um, apparently, the singer um, for the House Martins was a, was a socialist, which I really liked. That appealed to me. Um, but he, uh, Ari, I think it was a cool design, and the and the House Martins design is a nod to like the the classic Blue Note, Blue Note type jazz, stuff. Yeah. yeah, jazz, yeah. like their art direction, that jazz label, and so it was like two things that I think Ari thought were really classy, um, aesthetically, and it sort of went with whatever he. By then, I got I had spent some years arguing with him about t-shirt designs and by then i kind of knew like i didn't know what i was like what i thought was cool was not cool and generally what he thought was cool was cool so like i didn't really get at that point i was like cool all right yeah it looks good whatever so, so do you know if they ever saw that cover or because i mean they were not the biggest band in the entire world so yeah, it seems I, like I they could have gotten would, to them it wouldn't be impossible I yeah think. like other things that i think of like crossed over from that world of like British indie, you know, like I remember my friend told me that when the future heads years later, the future heads played at the church in Philly, uh, they were like talking to the R5 guys about how cool the place was and what a history it had. And they were like, wait, did lifetime ever play here? And I got, that got me really excited because like the future heads first record is one of my favorite records. Oh, that's but just awesome. that they that they were asking whether Lifetime had played in that room, yeah, like, kind of excitedly was exciting to me. Totally, so, you know, it's not, it's not, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be shocked if I to find out that the House Martins had seen it, um, but I've never heard anything. Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. So, uh, Hello Bastards was the first record on Jade Tree that you were a part of. How did that relationship start? Well, we knew those guys. I'm about to say obviously, but I don't know why it would be obvious unless you were like from the Northeast and of our generation. Um, Tim and Darren, who did Jade Tree Records, had both done small, like straight edge hardcore labels before Jade Tree. So, we definitely knew them. Uh, I don't think any of us knew them well, but Darren had done high impact records, which put out the legendary Turning Point Seven Inch, which is still my favorite, like hardcore punk seven inch from the state of New Jersey. Um, I think he put out a Zero Tolerance seven inch before that, and something else after. But mostly, I, I just was like, oh, yeah, high impact, Turning Point, hell yeah. Turning Point was like the best band from New Jersey, besides maybe Adrenaline OD or something like that. Um, <laughs> and then Tim had done a label called Action Pack, 
who put out the four walls following seven inch, the release seven inch, which is Jersey also. And yeah. then uh, some less notable records. I don't know if um, I don't know if this is if you're the person that should have the jurisdiction to answer this, but like I'm curious if you know like what made these two team up and what was their do you know what like their goal was? Because obviously the label ended up putting out a lot of different styles of punk and hardcore, a lot of very melodic things. But do you know if like they had a plan with starting this thing and like what they were going for? I think their goal was to just like, sort of expand the palette of like what a what a punk label was could be known for and could be like sure could spread like the word that it could spread so um and i think we were aware of them because i mean we were aware of them because we knew who they were from the records they put out by bands we love people we knew but then also jade tree themselves they um had put out the four walls falling lp which is fantastic and really one of the kind of the notable for being a straight edge hardcore band that really like was political all like through and through like every song about like critiques of capitalism and race and class divisions and and straight edge is a revolutionary mindset not just as like a better than you <laughs> um and uh so I love that Four Walls Falling LP. Um, and then they put out the Swizz discography, which is like anyone with any class into hardcore, uh, you know, like really dig Swizz and like had those records. So like, like that's how I knew Ari was on the up and up when I first met him. He had all the Swizz records in his record collection. Um, <laughs> and uh, Swizz were like the epitome of like, cool hardcore band like yeah cool like and you know like for a band to be doing like hardcore in dc in the late 80s was you know like the whole discord scene had moved on from fast music and then swiss mm -hmm. was doing this stuff that was like like can i say but even more hardcore sure um, and so they'd put up the swiss discography which we were like okay well clearly these guys are like the ones to watch. Um, and they put a bunch of like uh, sort of more indie rock, like Eat Seven Inches by bands that we thought were cool and really liked what they were doing. And they also were uh, distributed by Mortem, which was another thing that I should mention. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was like this really kind of foundationally like important model for independent record distribution because if you talk to anybody in the late 80s who ran an independent label or was involved with an independent label, they'd tell you the biggest obstacle to like moving forward and consistently putting out records is they couldn't get paid. So they would send records out to stores and other distributors on consignment and then people would be like, ah, let me call you back. Or like, so um, what Mortem did was it used and it was sort of founded by uh, this woman, Ruth. And then I think um, with in, in collaboration with Jello Biafra, who is a singer from Dick Kennedy's and did Alternative Tentacles records. Um, and I think maybe the Lookout people, it was basically like a couple of labels that were 
you know, like heavy hitters in the in the punk independent music world whose discographies were like in demand constantly. You know, like everybody right. any store or distro needed new Dead Kennedy's records or new, you know, Green Day records or whatever. And um and they used their those labels clout to get the small labels paid. So they sort of like all work together with this this consortium of like maybe like two dozen independent labels, punk labels. So Mortem used the collective clout of all these indie labels, big and small, to make sure everybody got paid. Like, oh, you want you want like more Green Day records and more Dick Kennedy's records? Like, you need to pay Allied the nine hundred and fifty dollars you owe them now. Um, and that was an awesome model, and it really used like sort of the the collective bargaining power of all these underground labels to make sure everybody got treated fairly by other distributors, by retail establishments who were normally often taking advantage of the fact that small indie labels had no clout. Like the coolest thing about punk is like the DIY shit, right? Like, and the way people are able to make business work and create business models that are non-exploitive and that aren't relying on, you know, multinational corporations to sort of make things move, I think is the coolest, the single coolest thing about our, our thing. So when it came to the relationship starting though, like, was this a situation where you sent them a, you sent JTree a demo or did they say, Hey, we want to put out your, your band? Yeah. They, after the Tinnitus seven inch, which we self-released, they reached out to us. Okay, cool. Like, We'd like to put out your records. I'm sure there wasn't cool. much uh, conversation about it. I'm sure you were like, well, if these guys are doing it, let's just give them a chance. Yeah, I think we were like pretty, we were pretty stoked. You know, I think, yeah. the, I think you could ask different, you know, you might get a slightly different answer from each of us, but I think for me and Ari, we were both like, they put out the Swiss discography. Right. <laughs> um, and they have good distribution and they'll like, they'll like make sure the record is like, that everybody who cares will know about it and can get it, which is the main thing, right? Right. And they had a really fair business model too. It's like a 50-50 profit split after after the overhead of the record was covered. And they, you know, they did a really good job. Uh, so um, I had ordered a couple, well, at this point, at that point, like probably like, five years earlier, I had ordered a four walls falling seven inch from Tim, which, you know, back then in like 1989, you put $5 in an envelope and said, Hey, I'm ordering the four walls falling seven inch. This, this is my address. And then, you know, uh, between two months and six months later, you would get it in the mail. Yeah. Um, and I remember I got a package I, like a year later, I got a package from action packed and it was like, sorry, the four walls falling seven inches out of print. Here's the new thing we're putting out the even score seven inch, which was, uh, I think Tony victory's first band. Um, and, uh, and I was like, I don't want this shit. I want my four walls falling seven inch. I was salty about it. Because I was like, all right, well, if it had been a good seven inch, I would have been like, all right, fair. You know, you ran out of these. 
Yeah. Um, but once I heard the even score seven inch, I was like, you could have just sent me my five dollars back. And yeah, would have been cool. Would have just liked the five bucks. <laughs> and Tim came to meet with us, like, um, to talk about working together. And he took the train up to New Brunswick, and we met him at the train station. I, I had never met him face to face before, and I was just like, "Hey, nice to meet you. Where's my four walls falling seven inch?" <laughs> just to fuck with yeah. Him. Of course, you know, of um, course. And uh, it was like just fun to see him throw a slack jaw, staring at me at the on the on the train platform. Like, what? Right? Did I just walk into? That's funny. So you know, you guys ended up doing Jersey's Best Dancers, uh, like I think it was like two years later or something like that. And I was kind of curious because sometimes I think about this when I think about time and and where bands were and what bands contemporaries were and things like that. But like. Did Lifetime around that time have trouble finding bands to tour with in the sense that like, do you like, how did you guys look at yourself? Because, you know, on some, you know, some people are like, oh, they're influential to a lot of like punk pop punk bands and things like that. But like, were you guys touring with bands that sounded like that? Or were you guys touring with more straightforward hardcore bands? Like what, what was the lane you guys were having to carve out for yourselves? There weren't bands that sounded like that. Um, so we thought of ourselves as a hardcore band. Of course. That incorporated a lot of like melodic hardcore and pop elements, you know? So like, I think, and then people would be like, it's not hardcore. Um, I think our dilemma at the time was like, we were too pretty for like the hard, hardcore kids and too hardcore for the pop punk kids. Mm-hmm. And which is fine, except it made it hard to find our lane. Totally. In some places, you know, where people were, you know, outside of like big cities where people had like musical tastes that were like kind of broader and less rigidly categorized. It wasn't like as challenging, like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, DC, Chicago. It wasn't easy to find people to tour with. And we, we switched it up. I mean, we, you know, like, trying to remember like we toured with damnation ad Mm -hmm. and a year later we toured with weston you know yeah um the kind of bands i felt like we made the most sense with were like a veil sure like when we when we played with the veil i felt like okay this is i understand like the, the sort of lane we're in totally that makes sense and what you're describing is very relatable i mean like i think my band has been in that same boat, you know, it's like, we're either right. the hardest thing on the soft show or the softest thing on the hard show. Yeah. And once you learn how to sort of wield that to your advantage, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. But in the yeah. beginning, but when you're first starting to do it, you do feel a little bit isolated. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, you know, at home, we just played with our friends bands who were all like hardcore bands, but well, no, that's not true. We could play with, we would play like with resurrection um, but we'd play with the bouncing souls and those are both like our, we had kind of different sets of, yeah, like these, these are our people. We had like the old, although like sort of the old, like New Jersey straight edge, hardcore kids, like, uh, yeah. resurrection, resurrection mouthpiece, like, and then like we toured with the bouncing souls, you know, in like 1994. Um, to jump like way ahead when mm-hmm. you guys got back together in like 2005, 
I assume you weren't surprised, like totally surprised by, you know, the reaction you got and like how, you know, big those reunion shows were, because I'm sure throughout the years you had people telling you all yeah. the influence a lifetime had. But what do you remember most from like that first show back? Like, was were you still finding yourself surprised by like how big the whole situation was? Yeah. I mean, the first that first weekend was like crazy. I don't even I don't know what else to say. It felt like what was the like, first um, show back? Was it I'm assuming it was in Jersey? It was actually in at the Trocadero in Philadelphia. Oh, in Philly. Cool. And then the second one was at the Starlight Ballroom in Philadelphia. Right. Okay. So like two different like twelve twelve hundred capacity rooms, like oversold, two nights in a row. And then the Stone Pony. And it was like, you know, I I understood that people have been trying to get us to play for like a decade. I understood that people would be excited about it, but like, you know. I uh, I remember I went to the Chain Reaction show and that was one of the first times where I really felt like um, experiencing that loud of an audience where like, I, I mean, Chain, you know, it's a wonderful venue for a, t for a ton of reasons, but it was, but when the, when you have a, a stage that can't be, that is not the most powerful thing in the entire world. So basically you're just hearing the audience louder than the band. I had never experienced that in that sort of capacity before. And I was just like stunned. And I feel like that was also the most amount of people that they've ever crammed inside. Yeah, chain reaction. definitely, definitely oversold. It was very oversold. And I, I remember being just like, this is, I feel very, you know, excited to be able to be present for this. So um, you could hear people singing in the, like the crowd louder than the louder than the stage yes where, especially where i was standing which was like kind of kind of on the other side of that tiny wall right. you know like uh -huh. so in the walkway area yeah, um, i remember that show it was it was unbelievable how quickly like when you guys got back together like how quickly did you guys start having the conversation about writing new material because that record the the follow-up record came out it was like two years later I think we were immediately like, if we're going to do this, it's not going to be like the Lifetime Nostalgia show. Okay. Like if we're a band, we're a band and bands make music. Right. It's funny um, how rarely I feel that happens now. You know, now it's like people just kind of want to hear the hits. But I appreciate that you guys right out the gate were like, no, we're going to, if we're going to do this, we got to play more music. We got to write more music. Yeah. We started writing right away. And also right away, we're like, we're going to do this like, as close to how we did it before, like, even though none of us lived in New Brunswick anymore, we re that's where we rehearsed. Oh, like you and went back to the old space? The, well, the old space didn't exactly exist. Um, but we went to another rehearsal, like a, you know, Got it, like yeah, yeah, yeah. pay by the hour rehearsal studio in another in another shitty warehouse in the, <laughs> in the industrial side of the city, which is like where we'd always pretty much worked and then we recorded at the same studio too. So yeah, you guys went back to Steve Evitz. Um, did I must, I was curious, did you guys all know, cause you guys ended up doing that uh, record on uh, the label run by uh, Pete Wentz or fallout boy guys. Did you know Pete Wentz from like back when? Cause he was always kind of affiliated with a lot of hardcore stuff. I had met him when he was, and um, he played bass in, uh, what are they called? The Arma Angulus or like Race Trainer, yeah. one of those. Bands? Race Trainer. Yeah. yeah. 
And Kid Dynamite played with Race Trader at some point. So I'd met him. How, what what were you guys like originally plan? I mean, not to get too into the weeds here, but like, was the plan to do it on Jade Tree? And then they came in and it was like, hey, well, this is a different kind of an opportunity. Like we can get our music out to more people. Was that sort of like the catalyst at least? No, I don't think we had planned to do it with Jade Tree. I, oh, okay. I thought we were just like open to. Going wherever. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Was that recording process any different than what had happened with like even just Jersey's best answers? Like, were you in the studio longer? Like, did it feel any sort of different? We had so much time. Yeah. I mean, we recorded Hello Bastards in three days. Mm -hmm. Um, And when in 1994, that felt like a long time. But, um, and then I think we had, you know, maybe like 10 days to do Jersey's Best Dancers, maybe, maybe eight to 10 days. I'm not sure exactly. We did it in two different chunks, so it's hard to remember. Uh, but I think we blocked out like four weeks for the self-titled record. Right. Did you find yourself uh, not knowing what to do with that time or were you guys kind of working hard every single day? I mean, the time definitely got used and not to do any kind of like expansive experimenting or anything like that. Like, yeah, I think we recorded everything together, but just kept the drums from that. Like Mm. we were all in the room together, but everything was scratch tracks except for the drums. Got it. And then I think we each came back and did our own stuff alone, just alone with Steve. So I definitely took a couple of days off work and, and just did guitars with with Steve. And then I left. And, you know, much like the old days, I hadn't heard what the vocals sound like for two thirds of the songs. Oh, OK. Which is always really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one. So now, you know, we can go we could hop back to uh post lifetime when kid dynamite started something that i really love that i think is just so funny is is the demo title like the six songs with jay singing situation mm-hmm. was that yeah. now was that just like an audition tape that went well is that sort of the the idea from it like because you guys from what i understood you guys wrote the music and then you were looking for a vocalist is that correct that is correct yeah so we recorded the the demo of just music okay um the concept, though, of the title is it's um, uh, I think it's a corrosion of conformity. It's something, something with so and so singing. Uh, Dave was Dave was the huge COC fan. So I'm a little bit of a poser for not remembering. OK, uh, six songs with Mike singing came out in 1985. Well done. Yeah. So it was patterned after that. I was curious because um, we talked about how the thing that changed with lifetime as time went on was you were writing to re singing like when you guys figured out how to do that did you find yourself trying to apply that same mindset with jay singing now yeah i think that's and i think that's like the grown-up way to write i mean you're writing to the strengths of the people that you play with you're not like look at this sick thing i made up that is cool and like you know shows everybody what a sick guitar player i am like that's not that's not a song that's like totally 
Uh, um, I guess I guess I'm more so curious though because I you know those are two different voices, very distinctly different voices, and also on top of that, like I don't know if they have different writing styles. You know what I'm saying? So I was curious if you had to sort of maneuver how to go about it, or if it still just felt like pretty cemented in place. Like this is how I write. This is how you should write with me. Yeah, I think um, Jason just had a just has a great ear, you know, mm. and so there wasn't really anything. There wasn't any experience of like in feeling things were in like any no experience of incongruity uh, with Jason. I think you know when Lifetime started out, we didn't know what we were doing. Like I'd never been in a real band before, and like I was just like writing hardcore songs patterned after the bands I thought were amazing. Uh huh. Um, we didn't even I didn't even we didn't even know what Artist Voice sounded like when we started or what he was going for or what we had a lot of conversations about what we liked but i think it took a long time before i realized that this is what he wanted to sound like and and some of that was what he wanted to sound like and some of it was what he was capable of jason had already been a singer in a band and the stuff he wrote for the those uh those that original demo was like really on point so it's like okay yeah did you have many other people trying out or was it kind of that he was the one right out the probably gate? Like ha- we had probably like a half dozen people come in. Any notable people that'd be fun for trivia aspects or was it just uh, friends? D- Darren from Jade tried out. Okay. And then Jeremy, who uh, owned the record store around the corner, which is called CI Records. Um, and he'd also been in a band from like central Pennsylvania. But yeah, I think, and then some, some other folks I'm not I don't remember off the top of my head sure shout out Darren though for still agreeing to put out the records considering he yeah. wasn't able to be in the I know. band I know. <laughs> but grudgingly it's a, tes- it's a testament to our lack of maturity that I don't think we ever really discussed it either that's amazing like hard feelings any hard feelings hope, hope that wasn't weird we probably didn't like totally avoid it but we probably didn't have a mature conversation discussion about it either um something i appreciate is uh the album cover for the cheap shots collection which i feel continues down the path of like referential stuff with like it being mm-hmm. like, like the who remake the, uh, i always sort of... wanted to i always wanted to to do something that like played off that yeah that's that what i was curious cover. of what this what the uh backstory there was i'd always wanted to do that with some bands like, yeah and so this is a cool opportunity to do it was the Who one of your favorite bands when you were when you were like making music around then, or is that just an album cover you like? Uh, the Who was like the early Who, like the three chord kind of like yeah stuff. I uh, was one of my favorite bands when I was a, a kid, and um, also the first when I found my mom's old guitar in the closet and like started like messing with it. The first song I figured out by ear was "Can't Explain" by the Who nice that's so, awesome that's the first that was my first where i was like oh i can like hear things and then like translate it to this wow that's so cool um it, it seemed like a revelation so so when kid dynamite like started playing shows did you feel like you already had a following just based off the lifetime connection or do you feel like you had to start from the ground up again uh i would say people were already paying attention to that's what cool. was like yeah people were waiting for it um and also we people knew 
like it was first of all it was me and dave together again which had mm -hmm. been you know uh the lifetime lineup for two records uh and dave and then dave had also been in ink and dagger and like he was just known as like the heaviest hitter at drum wise like people yeah. just like love to watch him and stare like with their jaw hanging down like yeah first you, like when you saw ink and dagger in those early days like which is maybe like a year after he left lifetime it was like terrifying they were like so good do you have and, uh, i have to ask do you have any good ink and dagger stories yeah i saw like their i think i saw their first and second show okay were they doing the vampire thing at like the first show like yeah the they were yeah that's awesome and it was yeah. literally like they came downstairs like it was a house show and the like their friends set up their amps and then like uh somebody turned on a turn off the lights and turn on a strobe light and they just came down the stairs picked up their instruments and just like crushed everybody for like 12 minutes and like when dave plays he pulls his arms like all the way up in the air and slams them down and it's even more pronounced in mid-tempo music so there's it was just like legendary they were like playing music that nobody ever like had conceptualized before but was definitely hardcore yeah um and doing this thing it was just like weird and spooky and crazy and like kind of like misfitsy but not with any of the camp that you associate with the misfits right just like yeah ink and dagger is like a situation where like nine hundred ninety nine thousand tries of someone trying to do that it's not gonna mm -hmm. work yeah. you know what i'm saying like b totally. between like the vibe what they're going for the image all of that sort of stuff it's not going to work but they happen to be the right yeah. people to do it at the right time to where it's just so yeah. cool it's just yeah. so cool don's a genius like musically as a guitar player like i actually think that uh he actually did some stuff uh he added some stuff to this new painted black record. oh wow that's cool and, um yeah he like the the end part of one of the songs we sent to him and asked him if he would contribute something to it nice um it doesn't sound like guitar at all it sounds like insane things happening anyway so like i think yeah. people you know it was like x lifetime it was me and dave back together again like ink and dagger had been this like legendary burst of something that was purely philadelphia yeah and then, you know so everybody sort of knew we were doing a band and Steve, our bass player, like, you know, had a, had a lot of, like, he knew a lot of people and like, we were rehearsing in this, um, in Dave's apartment, which is like on South street, like third floor apartment on South street, which is like oh where God. all the, all the punk kids hung out on, at night, like, like getting food and going to record stores and stuff. So people were listening to us practice like, for a year yeah um and uh so yeah it was just kind of by the time we actually played it people were pretty stoked and and props to robbie red cheeks who did our who put us on our first show which was a, a banger what was it it was uh better than a thousand and judas factor and maybe floor punch at, okay. the YMC, at the YMCA in South Philly, which was a place he was doing shows for a while. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I love that it seems like as soon as a band breaks up, you have a new band within a year. 
do you do you, or more so it feels that way like you it seemed like you didn't stop once you started playing music and i'm stubborn i love that i love <laughs> that uh so once you know kid dynamite folds and then it's you know within a couple years i think it's like a year and a half uh, maybe yeah. something like that the paint of black starts <clears throat> and you did your first demo with brian mcturnan was that your first time working with him yeah, but I knew him forever. Forever, I mean, of like, Yeah. Because Ashes, Ashes and Lifetime played about 100 shows together. And he was the kid. You know, he was the little kid who uh, who had, like, a guitar style of his own. That was probably, like, it seemed kind of a little bit influenced by the same bands as us, like Verbal sure. Assault and Dag Nasty. And he also, like me, played Barefoot. I'm, I'm assuming it was awesome for you to see, like, his career go so cool with like his production stuff and all of that i mean like aside from awesome. his bands yeah yeah um i had him on here last year or something like that and it was that was my first time ever meeting him it's like such a such a sweet guy um sweet. was this is an obvious question probably but like painted black was the first time you were singing had you ever have you ever tried did you ever do any side bands where you sang at any point or was this the first one no just backups yeah yeah, like the screen, any background screaming on Lifetime Records is me. Like Star 6-9, that shouting. Like that's, yeah. yeah. Any kind of go, any shout, anytime anybody shouts go on a Lifetime or Kid Dynamite record, that was me. So I knew I could scream. I didn't know how hard it was going to be. Yeah, Dude, talk to why me about any, that. Why didn't yeah. anybody tell me how hard <laughs> it was physically Yeah. to do it for a whole 40-minute set? Uh-huh absolutely yeah what was uh what was your did you guys record first before you played a show i think i think so yeah that seems like the move like where it's just sort of like a all-in-one situation where it's like okay now we're playing a show and here you can hear the music as well um but what was yeah what was the first show for you like is painted black was it did you find yourself being physically exhausted after like the first block of songs yes yeah. I was like, well, I have to do this for like seven more songs. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. To, yeah, like how especially when you first start out, I guess it doesn't get talked about enough, but like it's so funny how you could just completely even just like blow your voice out after a few songs, or you've just exerted all of your energy because you're so hyped up about it that you're just yeah. like, Oh my god, I gotta learn to pace myself. Yeah. And I was nervous because like, I don't, it's, it's all adrenaline. Like I don't have any technique for screaming and I certainly probably don't do it correctly. And uh, I'm always anxious about it because I've never lost my voice live, like, like at a show, uh-huh. but at, pra- at practice, I blow my voice out after like five songs every time. Wow. What do you think that is? I think on stage, I'm not thinking about it or worrying about it. I think, um, and I got a, and there's a lot of adrenaline. Huh. You'd almost think it'd be the other way around. You'd think. Yeah. That's interesting. The first Painted Black record, the, the CVA record, um, that was your, f- what drew you guys to want to go record with uh, Dean, is it Batalonis? Is that how you say the last name? Batalonis? Yeah. Because he's like, from what I've seen, I think I recently just had Justice from uh, Angel Dust on, and I think he had recorded some with him or trapped under ice, but like has this very lengthy discography of a lot of like New York hardcore from what I can tell. 
um, was that just like a, a thing you, did you know him? Was that something you were going for? What was, uh, what was the motivation there? We did not know him. We knew he knew how to make a good recording because I think they had done the, um, the Hope Conspiracy LP end note there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which Andy was a big fan of, but that was not, we, we kind of ended up going there because we needed a place to go that was a good studio with somebody who knew how to do hardcore. And um, our original plans kind of uh, got screwed up. We were originally uh, scheduled to record with Jay Robbins at Inner Ear. And Dave threw his back out and we had to cancel and postpone it for months because Dave couldn't like basically sit up on a drum stool. Yeah. He was like on Damn. disability from work. It was like really bad. And like, it was bad too, because like I had to cancel on Don and Jay and um, really last minute. Yeah. And it kind of left them hanging in a way that, um, that I felt really terrible about. Um, Cause you know, when you make a living off your time in that way and you, you block time out and then it doesn't get used hard to find somebody else to step into like a recording like a you know five days in your studio at the last minute um, yeah but we also didn't have the resources to pay them for the time uh so once you guys so, ended up going in though like when you went to go record your vocals were you did that take you a long time? Like, did, were you blowing your voice out in the studio or was it, was it like nerve wracking, like having, you know, kind of like the attention on you at this point? Yeah, it was nerve wracking, but I didn't lose my voice in the studio. I think I just, you know, when, you, can, when, when you don't have to, when you don't have to push to hear yourself over the music, you know, the studio environment, you can make sure like the music's just loud enough that you, that you know where you're going, but you, but it's not, you don't have to scream to, to, hear yourself over it yeah so it's not a as much of a a, a liability to lose, for losing your voice um i can't remember what year it would have been but i saw the first time i saw painted black was at the troubadour with from ashes rise and oh, yeah. coliseum um yeah, yeah was that that was probably touring on maybe like paradise or something right does that sound familiar yeah, yeah. um had you guys done many full U.S.s? Because from what I've always kind of gathered, Painted Black wasn't a band that toured super, super often. Is that fair to say? No. Yeah, and we never did a full U.S. Was that one a full U.S.? No. Okay, so that was like maybe like a West Coast run or something. That was a West Coast run. We would do like we generally do like two ten day runs. Like one, and one would be like East Coast northern midwest and one would be like west coast and then we'd go to europe for a couple for like 10 days right it's right. all really all the time i could with clear conscience take off from work got it like that makes in, sense. in one in one setting you know yeah so once you guys got the ability to go record with jay robbins um you guys obviously did uh paradise and new lexicon with him what yeah. do you think there is about that relationship that works for this band in particular um he's he knows he knows intimately the, the stuff we're influenced by yeah you know like he's he's like jay robbins like right he was yeah. in government issue he's like he's like from the 
DC area during the time, like the records that we kind of worship were made. Yeah. Um, and, and he, um, he knows exactly what we're going for. Um, that we kind of like are equally influenced by minor threat and right to spring. Totally. And like, and a lot of other stuff in between it isn't even from the world of hardcore which he all like i don't know like every time the more i know about jay's taste the more i'm like oh he really does even at a pre-verbal level know exactly what like like i remember at one point like i pulled out this the that the bastro lp and i was like because uh, david grubbs is a guitarist i really admire and i like that record and then I hadn't listened to it a while and I was well, I hadn't listened to it since before I knew Jay. Then I listened to it and I was like, Oh, I feel like there's a lot of like Jawbox may have taken some influence from this. And I was like, Are you a Bastro fan? He's like, Hell yeah. <laughs> and like you know, they Jawbox I'm Jawbox covered my favorite big boy song that I always wanted to cover, uh, Sound on Sound. It sounds like no other big boy song. It's like this beautiful pretty hypnotically slow song uh it sounds like nothing else in their discography and jawbox covered that song it's like that's the perfect big boy song to cover like yeah. everything he just he he did like a covers ep as a solo artist a couple of years ago as a fundraiser for uh some charitable causes and he covered like one of my favorite mission of burma songs so he just like on every level gets gets it gets where we're coming from yeah you guys are just in sync with open city um what what was the uh the genesis of that band starting like was it just the right place right time the right people what what uh what was the first motivation for that band i love what you guys are doing it's it's Thank super you. super good um with open city so in 2009 jared who's the drummer from Tina black moved to los angeles um He's a session drummer and, it, you know, you basically have to be in New York or L.A. And it wasn't working out for him in New York. And he was like, I, I need to move. But I, like, I don't want to, like, leave you guys stranded. Like, you know, he's just like fiercely loyal in this way that almost doesn't even make sense. I'm like, it's this is your like livelihood. Like, why would you be considering our band that, you know, plays like. 20 shows a year or 20, whatever. Yeah. Um, and he's like, well, I, you know, I'm not going to like leave you guys hanging like go like I'm having a kid. <laughs> I'm having a kid in a few months. Like we're going to play even less, like yeah. go to move to Los Angeles. Go. Yeah. My blessing. And he moved, which then of course made, I didn't realize how much I was going to miss. Like once we got used to having like raising a kid and I had a little more, like I was sleeping through the night again and had a little more time. Um, I, I didn't think I had any idea how much I was going to miss being in a band that actually gets together every week and practices um, and how much I kind of rely on that rhythm as sort of like the armature on which like my creativity as a songwriter is, is, is built. And um, so Andy and I were just like, we need to do a band where everybody lives in Philadelphia and we practice every week. And, he had been working with Chris on some other projects. Um, and 
you know, I know we knew that Chris is like really into punk and hardcore. We had been watching him play with Ted Leo for years and just being like, damn, he's the best drummer. Yeah. Uh, and we sort of also noticed that like he basically, uh, we only ever saw him in black t-shirts uh, that said either Iconochrist, Void, or Drop Dead on them. And we were like, okay. Um, and we also knew him well enough to that, know that he was like grounded in the same like 90s DIY, like basement core kind of stuff that, that we were most, we had the strongest affinity for at that point. And so we sort of realized that he was down to do something faster and more aggressive anyway. Yeah. And so we started playing and, um, and you know, our reference points were immediately insane. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it, it sounds, it all sounds very realized and very in sync. It's, uh, it's, it's super awesome. I'm excited to, for this, uh, for this full LP to come out. Um, me too. so let me hit you with the last question, which is when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? I mean, obviously the first time we played a show where people were like stage diving and singing along, that's the first time you're like, oh yeah, definitely. I, which would have been, you know, in like 1991, maybe sure. or 92, uh, when the first Lifetime Seven Inch came out, definitely like to have a piece of vinyl with your like band on it is like kind of a transformative experience. But you know, we also weren't still. We knew we weren't settled in our sound at all. Um. And the first time I really felt like, oh, okay, like now, now we're all working on the same, we're all on the same page in the same lane, like, was like when we were working on the, the songs that eventually became the, the Tinnitus 7-inch. Yeah. And um, that song, that song, Star 69, I don't know, something about that song just felt like, like we had found, this is what we sound like. And you know, as, as as you know from being a singer, like a lot of times the band can't hear you in practice or maybe you're sitting in the corner with your notebook and your fingers in your ears trying to work out what you're going to sing. And and I remember I was coming up, I was late to practice because I was driving up at this point from Philly for practice twice a week. And I'm walking up the driveway. And it's the first time I could hear Ari singing through the PA, the vocals he'd written for that song. And I remember, like, it's like the first part, like the, the part of the song that's like kind of fast, but also it's, it's chopped up. And like, there's this uh, this line, this one melody line. I can't sing, but it's like, and you feel right to ask, are you depressed again sometimes? And I could hear what he was singing, and I was like, oh shit, that's it. That's like this is what we've been like converging towards like, yeah this what this song sounds like it's awesome it's awesome dude thanks so much for for doing this dan i appreciate it i know i know your yeah. uh, your schedule's tight so i appreciate that this is this has been awesome And that is our show. Thank you so much to Dan for coming on and thank you for listening. This episode was edited and produced by my boy, Ryan Rainbow, who made it sound out so good. So shout out to Ryan. 
Thank you as always. And uh, reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now where Dan answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next Wednesday with a brand new episode. Have a good rest of your week. Take care. Bye bye.